Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Mark Casaglo, the Chief Revenue Officer at Catalyst Software and the former Senior Vice President of Global Sales and Outreach. Today, we'll be covering three main topics with Mark. First, the reality of the first two to three years as a sales leader at a category-creating B2B SaaS company, Outreach. Second, the lessons Mark learned on the sales leader's journey from zero to $100 million plus ARR. And third, the importance of the delivery of the message while creating a culture. Is that a secret to a CRO's success? Mark, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Thanks for having me, Ray. Really appreciate it. Yep. So I um, started my sales career. I was an outside sales rep for eight years for a company that sold stuff to schools, moved into sales leadership for five years after that at a school supply company. That's uh, one of the largest school supply companies in the world, a publicly traded company. Then I got into the startup and the SaaS world at Outreach and was able to lead sales for eight years as Outreach became a $4.4 billion company and you know with over 15 or 1,600 employees. And now I'm the chief revenue officer at Catalyst, which is uh, trying to help companies create a growth engine through their customers. So that's the uh, 30-second TLDR path, Ray. Lots of twists and turns that I missed, though. <laughs> well, we're going to get a lot of additional insights from those twists and turns in your journey, but I always love it when somebody got their education selling to schools, if you get what I mean. <laughs> I'm feeling you dad jokes. <laughs> exactly. I, I am a recovering father, so I apologize for that. But let's talk about the education that you had at Outreach. And specifically, I saw a LinkedIn post, and for anyone, Mark is a great follow on LinkedIn if you're not doing it. But you talked about the reality of early stage sales leadership and a B2B SaaS company. And that was where Manny Medina, the founder, would actually be your primary lead source. He would work on weekends to go out and create the contacts and leads that you started following up on Monday. So it reminded me how much grit is required in building a great company. So can you share with our listening audience kind of the two or three lessons and expectations that they should be ready for if they go into sales leadership at an early stage SaaS company? Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm kind of doing that again at Catalyst. So I can tell you with a lot of recency bias, the, the most important thing at a young company is pipeline. And I would say even at a mature company. And that's the first thing I did when I came into Catalyst is I work with my marketing leader who was in the middle of revamping our demand gen strategy to make sure that we had strong marketing contribution. I then reworked with the SDR team. I was really lucky enough to have this amazing set of four SDRs that are top notch. And I just needed to give them a little more structure and help them understand what their role and what their responsibilities were every day. We started actually with my second week, we started something called a six week pipeline push. 
And over that six weeks, we had our six best weeks, almost week over week of pipe gin for in the entire history of the company. And so we just really got that pipe gin right. And, you know, pipeline solves all ills. And so if you can get pipeline, you can muscle your way through other kinds of results down the funnel. So we got the pipeline right. That's the first thing you have to figure out. How do I create a repeatable process in order to book meetings that convert into qualified deals? If you can't get that right, then the rest all becomes just way too pressure packed and hard. Let's double click on pipeline because I think any revenue leader out there today, that's like such a high priority. If not always number one, almost always number one. You talked about repeatability. So at an early stage B2B SaaS company, you kind of define your ICP, your ideal customer profile, maybe have unique messages for the different buyer personas. Do you find those are two of other priorities to ensure that pipeline generation can be repeatable? What else makes I, pipeline repeatable? Yeah, ICP is the first start. Like define a narrow list of accounts at Catalyst is about 3,200. That'll get us to $20 million. Uh, of those 3,200, I know that the data sources are only 60 to 70% accurate. So it's probably only about 2,000 accounts and the rest we need to figure out what's wrong with them and get them out and move other ones in. And then, yeah, we create a persona map of here's the type of personas that should respond to our uh, messaging. We have, uh, I use Skip Miller's proactive selling methodology of below the line and above the line. So we identify people that are below the power line in those personas that are relevant, people that are above the power line that are relevant. Then we create a little you know, idea of what kind of each of those people care about, what they talk about. Then we let it rip and codify all that inside of a multi-channeled sequencing tool like Outreach. Uh, we use Outreach at Catalyst. I'll never use anything else. <laughs> and then you set the daily expectations of what kind of baseline metrics you need to hit. At Catalyst, our SDRs need to do 50 dials, put 15 people in sequence per day, and uh, they need to end the day with zero overdue tasks. And if they do those three things, we believe that as long as we've picked the right personas and got the right messaging in the right side of accounts, that an SDR should be able to crush their quota number. And that's actually what we found is we just need a little bit more structure around it here and dial in the ICP a bit more. They had some great messaging that was already working. So we just applied that across a couple personas. And then we just set the daily standards. And now we hold them accountable to that every single day. And that had a dramatic impact on PipeGen. Let me double click on PipeGen a little bit more. You, you talked about SDRs. What about the role of the account executive in pipeline generation at that early stage? What is their role, Mark? Yeah, I have a very specific perspective on this. And I was lucky at Outreach that our SDR org was so good and Outreach is such an effective tool and we were so good at administering it and architecting it and managing to it that for the first five years, my AEs didn't have to prospect. They had enough deals in their pipeline that they could make their number without prospecting. And actually in the very early stages, I had a rule that until an AE came to me and said, Mark, I have too many meetings. I'm starting to like lose deals just because I can't get everything. I wouldn't hire anybody new. And so that's how I hired. So I brought those same philosophies to Catalyst and refined them just a bit. So this would be my general guideline. It does fluctuate based on if you're doing more transactional versus mid-market versus enterprise deals, what your average deal size is what your you know, deal velocity is. But in general, this is the way I look at it. Once I get an AE 
to 25 active qualified deals in their pipeline, they now go from 50 dials and 10 people that they need to sequence per day to 50 dials and 10 people they sequence per week. So I don't want the prospecting muscle to atrophy, but I want them to be able to get their prospecting done in an hour, which is what they can do at those levels. Because the rest of the 39 hours or 59 hours, depending on how much they're working, I need them spent on converting the deals. And so uh, if you are prospecting multiple hours a week and you know an hour or two a day, you are losing deals because you have so many deals in your pipeline that you're not adequately prepping and preparing and working on those deals. And so at 25 deals, they can move to 50 dials and 10 people in sequence per week versus per day. They can stay at that level of activity until they get below 15 deals. At 14 deals and under, I take them back to the SDR numbers, which are 50 dials and 10 people that you've sequenced per day. And we hold them accountable to that level of productivity until they can get their pipeline back up to 25. If they stay between 15 and 25, then they can stay on a weekly prospecting activity metrics, uh, you know, expectations, and that's fine. So that's kind of how I manage it early stage is I want my AEs at with swings at the plate in deals, constantly working, getting us a ton of feedback on how to get, make sure that we're creating a great sales process. And guess what doesn't help me do that? Them prospecting time doing cold calls. Cold call is like low value. It's weird to say this, but it's low value activity for an AE early stage. High value activity is in a meeting, learning how to get deals done. And so as much as I can transfer that over to the SDR work, I try to do. Okay. Let's circle back because we double clicked on pipeline generation as a top priority. What is another second or third priority that you would recommend to fellow CROs that when you first go in at early stage, you really need to focus on? Yeah, so I've done that at Catalyst. We got a you know unbelievable few weeks of setting meetings. Pipelines are now bursting when before they were a bit anemic. And even during the week of Thanksgiving, we had an amazing week of setting meetings. And so it feels like we've turned the corner of a culture of prospecting. So what do you do then when you have all this pipeline, right? What do you got to work on then? It's simple. You got to work on conversion. <laughs> and so that's when I put two things into place. The two things that are fundamental to me to conversion are a very strong stage-based deal management uh, sales process. You have to be able to show a rep what the stages mean, what you have to do to get through each stage and how you guide a buyer through those stages. And then the second thing that you need is a strong deal management or deal review process. And so that's what the manager helps the rep get through the deal. So those are the two things that I've launched in the last three or four weeks at Catalyst. The first month I worked on pipeline, second month I'm, I'm working on conversion. So that's the second, the second area that you work on is get your sales process in place. And it can't be a lip service where 90% of deals don't ever leave stage one, and then they go directly from stage one to stage closed one. That isn't a sales process. A sales process is right now, you know, I can look at my deals and I see a great percentage in the early stages, stages, a bunch in the middle stages, ones at the end stages, because we're actively using that to inform the rep on what to do to guide the buyer forward in the deal. 
And so that's uh, that's the most important thing. And then you got to have managers have to have a structure to coach on that, which is my deal review process. So, Mark, you implement this stage by stage sales process. You get people trained on it and then you kind of monitor, I would think, stage by stage conversion rates to provide insights and the opportunity for coaching how to move from a stage two to stage three. Does the sales process and the stages, are they pliable? Do you change them based upon real feedback from the buyer process? So this is what I'd say is, first of all, stage by stage conversion isn't relevant until you have a decent sample size. It will be a couple quarters or more until I have enough data for that to mean anything and be anything other than just happenstance and luck. So I'm setting up the ability to be able to do that. But if you monitor stage by stage conversion, when you're closing less than 10 or 20 deals a month, you don't have enough sample size to make it make any analysis statistically significant. So don't waste your time. Just set up so that you can look at that. Then pliable, listen, this is how I do stage-based stuff is I think that a sales roadmap needs to be a table or a spreadsheet. And at the top of the spreadsheet, you have your stages and they need to be, I think, worded in a buyer-centric way. There needs to be a key question that you answer at each stage. So for example, at Catalyst, the first stage that we have, stage one, now we have a stage zero, which is when we book a meeting, we create the opportunity. It doesn't move into stage one until that meeting has been held and the opportunity has been qualified. But the first stage question is, is do they have problems we solve? Until we figure that out, like we got to figure that out, right? Stage two, for example, is now are there problems big enough to solve? So it doesn't matter if you can solve tiny problems. You have to solve big problems. Stage three, for example, is will they agree how to buy? So if they won't agree how to buy, then how the heck do I lead them through a sales process? And then, then there's like, will their investment be worth it? Well, we're now validating the emotional stuff that we've built up earlier in the sale. And then lastly, like, are they going to move forward and be a customer or not? Like, so that's the, those are the questions. Then we have ATL activities. What are suggested things that you can do with above the line director plus type people in a sales process that gets them to get momentum and belief? Then there's BTL. What do we do with the user base, the people below the line that we can get information of to help us improve our conversations with ATL? Then there's gives and gets. What are the things that we can give? But if we give something, what do we expect to get back? And that's an equation that many reps miss. They just give, they don't ever get back. And that creates a bad situation. Then we look at what are the sales questions that you should be able to answer to yourself and your manager to know really that you have a strong deal in each stage. And then lastly, the most important thing is the success criteria or the exit criteria. These are the things that must happen in order for the deal to move stages. Now you can do them out of order. You can do the last stuff first, whatever, but it can't move out of that stage until you've completed that exit criteria. And those are the key things that the buyer needs to do. I have two per stage that they have to do in order for the deal to move to the next one. And that's what gives the rep the roadmap. So if I know my exit stage criteria in stage two is quantify business initiatives, then I can ask the rep, have you quantified the business initiatives? And now after, over time, they'll start to understand, I need to set up a meeting to quantify the business initiatives. Then after I've done it a few times, I'll understand how to do it. And now what I do is I get very proactive over time and I burn a new neural pathway in my brain that helps me understand how to move a deal forward where I'm like, at the end of the first meeting, I'm selling them on the importance of quantifying business initiatives in the next meeting that I want set. And so those, ex those exit criteria are the most critical part of your sales process because 
that's how the rep guides and pulls the buyer through the sales process. I love that a new school sales leader has some old sales school techniques <laughs> like gates. You call them exit criteria. Old person like me calls them gates. But you mentioned something. You walked in, you established a sales process. I'm sure there's a lot of show by doing or at least coaching with your account executives to really understand the value of each of those exit criteria and how it improves their close rate, correct? Yeah, yeah. At, at what stage or is there an indicator of when that ceases to be Mark's primary job and you look at having sales enablement kind of help with making that more broad-based knowledge? So let me designate the difference in the roles, I think. I never think that it's sales enablement's job to do that. I think it's sales enablement's job to relay the information and make it available and digestible. It is the sales manager's job to make sure that the enablement actually happens or actually is effective and the rep gains the behaviors that the enablement is supposed to create, right? So, you know, listen, I think I made a mistake at outreach where I didn't hire sales enablement fast enough early on. And then I was lucky. I got an unbelievable partner in sales enablement, Jerry Farr, that came in and like caught us up and drove us forward and really set us up for future success. And so I think probably you need it a little bit earlier than you think, but you can't set them up to be a trainer or a coach. Their job is to take what you've done codify it, document it. I have a, a thing that says, you know, process makes you great, but documentation makes you legendary. And then make sure that the documentation is kept up to date, it's done, and that the managers understand how to apply that documentation and that process in with their reps in deals. If you, you can get enablement to do that, but enablement shouldn't be holding. Now, obviously they're going to hold a training session to relay information, but enablement, in my opinion, especially early on, shouldn't be coaching. Your managers have to be coaching. Great clarification. Um, are there any signals that tell you it's time to invest in sales enablement? You mentioned an outreach. Maybe you did it too late. And you said, now you should do it earlier than you think. But are there any signals that tell you when it's that time, Mark? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I don't know if there's any signals. I think that it depends on the strengths of the sales leader and the sales manager, if they can cover it long enough. I think really for me, what it comes down to is, is like, do I understand it enough that I could, it takes me less time to tell a sales enablement person what to do and then they can go do it? Or is it going to take me just as much time to explain it to them, work through it? I'm not quite sure. We're going to do this and this, and that. And then I could have just done all that with the reps and take them on the experiential journey of figuring it out with me. And so, you know, someone like that, me, that has a lot of established processes and beliefs that just need to be tuned to the company I go to, I could probably hire an enablement person much sooner than somebody that is still just trying to figure a lot of stuff out. Your enablement person shouldn't figure stuff out. They should take what you want, what you know, and what your product market person and put it together in a really compelling, awesome uh, way for reps to, that they pay attention to. That was a really good point of clarification. They shouldn't be figuring it out. You should have a repeatable customer acquisition process that then they can help scale across a lot more new reps. Yes, exactly. Well, now let's pivot to operations. As a chief revenue officer, you probably have revenue operations. Maybe you have sales and other operations. When do you think about investing in operations? 
So I have all, all of ops. And I would tell you that ops is the secret weapon of a great sales and revenue leader. You know, ops is kind of like the plumber and the electrician and the HVAC guy. Like, you know, they're in the walls doing stuff. And if they screw something up, the whole house comes down. But like, if everything's working right, nobody thinks about it. And I don't know if that's like fair to those really smart people that work really hard and do such valuable things, but that's kind of like how it is. And so I'm a very operational uh, revenue leader. I think in terms of process, I do that because I have a personality problem, like a personality trait about me that I'm very forgetful. And if I don't have a process, then I'll forget the way to do things best. So I compensate by creating processes in my entire life, you know, my process from the time I wake up in the morning until I get down to this desk is like 99.9% the same every single morning. It's not because I'm OCD or because I'm not involved and not thinking. It's because if I don't, I'll forget to put on deodorant. Like 100% I'll forget to put on my deodorant because I'll just be thinking about stuff, right? So I think the same thing for me with revenue orgs is the leadership in concert with the people doing the job should create a process the RevOps people should then plumb that process out, figure out how to add efficiency to it with technology, and then make sure that it's measurable so that you can see if it's working the way it needs to go. And then they should, that's just rinse and repeat more and more processes, more and more efficiency, more and more measurement so that, you know, you can't do that as a sales leader or a revenue leader uh, if you don't have ops. What you'll end up doing is, is You'll either not do it at all, which is extremely dangerous, and now you won't be repeatable anyway, or you'll get pieces of it, and then you won't have the entire picture that you could have had if RevOps was helping you. So yeah, I was really lucky at Outreach. We hired uh, on another awesome partner I had named Manny Ortega, who was my kind of right-hand ops man. We hired him as an independent contractor to start, and he and I would probably spend an hour or two a night working on like Salesforce and this and that, and how we're going to do this. And uh, that was like my secret weapon in the beginning is, is me and EO would like really make sure that I was tuned up on the ops side and not just creating everything with a checklist and a Google doc. So in earlier stage, kind of like where you're at today, Mark, sales enablement and rev ops, both report directly to the CRO or is one reporting to the other? The way that I view it, Ray, is RevOps obviously goes into the CRO, and I am a huge enablement person. I believe in it. I stand by it. I want to invest in it. And I've always had a very strong partnership with my enablement people. I don't understand why you would put that in ops. It doesn't make sense. It's such a different function. It's actually, honestly, it's a little bit like oil and water. You have your ops people who's a little more thoughtful, a little more introspective, a little bit more heads down. And then you have your enablement person who should be a little bit more people oriented, a little bit more extroverted, a little bit more energy. I don't know why you would squish those two roles together. Actually, I think it's because some revenue leaders are lazy and they don't know what to do and how to manage and how to help enablement. So they send them under ops who also doesn't know. Just figure out how to run enablement right way. And then it'll very much benefit you if they report directly to you. I totally agree with that. And from these initial kind of 20 minutes we spent together, Mark, I can see that you're very process-centric and data-driven, much like I was. One of the challenges I always had was balancing that kind of process data orientation with culture fit. And in one of your LinkedIn posts, you talked about how there was an early CRO 
at your company that had all the right ideas, but had a hard time getting them accepted and deployed until after they left. So how do you go about creating the right culture and the right culture fit as a new CRO? And I know those are two different things, either creating culture or integrating into the existing culture. Yeah. Listen, I've worked with a lot of leaders over the years of my career where the messenger killed the message. And, you know, I think that um, when I've seen it done correctly is you honor and respect the things that have gotten the company there. And you have to be very careful in your language and make sure that you're not, you know, denigrating hard work and learnings that you didn't have to go through in order to legitimize what you want to do. And so I'd hope that Catalyst, maybe I have, and if I have, it's my bad, but like, I try not to talk down to what has gotten the company to where it is. I don't need to do that to legitimize my perspective. My perspective is my perspective. I'm going to share it. And then I expect the people that I work with now to help me understand where it works and where it doesn't and what adjustments that we need to make moving forward. So I think that that's the main thing is, is like, do you take people on the journey to new or do you just expect them to like get on the boat and, you know, you're going to do everything to get them there. Right. So I like to take people on the journey. Great example. When I sit down with the SDRs, I'll give you two examples, one good, one bad. Sit down with the SDRs at Catalyst. I said, we're going to have to, we need to cold call more. Cold calling volume isn't high enough. I deeply believe that if it proves not to work here, we'll quit it, but we need to jump all in and do it. I said, here are two cold calling methodologies that I've used in the past. Let's talk about which one you guys would like to use more. And we talked through them and they're like, we really like this one. And I'm like, well, I like this one. They're like, but we really, I'm like, all right, let's use the one you like. Now let's adapt it to Catalyst. Now let's go use it. And of course, somebody booked a meeting on the phone in 10 minutes after we did it, you know, just those little things like that. And so, and now I just worked with my good friend, Tito Bort on some software that he has in place. And Tito showed me that my SDR team is converting cold calls to meetings at about 3X what a normal SDR team is doing. Now, do I believe that that's because I was such a great cold call coach and all that stuff? Or maybe, but... I think what I really believe is that they felt ownership over their cold calling process and they just needed some guidelines and some confidence and somebody to steer them in the right direction. And all of that talent and belief and ownership resulted in really strong results. Now, here's a bad example. I came into Catalyst with a perspective on how email should be written. And they had gotten some training that said, oh, mention a hobby on an email to start and you'll have amazing. I was like, that's Bull crap. I've done a million emails in my life. I've worked at the company that sent more sales emails than probably any company ever on the face of the planet. And like, I know hobbies don't care. Nobody cares about hobbies. That's just fluff that you just should just cut out and get to the point. So I created a very aggressive sequence that was less personalized. And three or four days later, one of my SDRs called me and they're like, hey, we're in a meeting. He's like, I'm getting a high number of unsubscribe replies, people asking to be let out. And I was like, whoa. And I went and go looked at the numbers. Horrible. I had ruined the email effectiveness of this org. So we, we went back to the hobby email and boom, everything went right back up. And we were booking more meetings than I've ever seen booked on email before. But my problem was, is I was tuning to a sales persona from my sales biased lens 
they had been working on CS and post sales people who are a little bit have maybe a little bit more softer personalities at times and a little more people centric, maybe not quite as driving at sales. And I don't mean that as a generality, but just, you know, that's some of the stuff. And they have appreciated and responded to a softer, more personalized approach, much better than salespeople did. But I dictated that we were going to change the email and I screwed up. And then we immediately pivoted when we found out I was wrong versus on the cold call, I let us build it together. And, uh, that worked out really well. So listen, that's that's the example. That's doing it right and doing it wrong all within one week. <laughs> Those are two great examples. And I can't believe our time's coming to end, but I have to talk about this one. Another post that you made talked about a bad marketing hire in a previous company. And as a CRO who's focused on pipeline generation as priority one, your marketing colleagues are pretty important. So what recommendation do you have to a CRO first entering a new company about building that partnership with their CMO. So this is like the old age old sales and marketing, you know, alignment issue, right? I think the first thing that I did here at Catalyst is I worked with my CMO and RevOps to create the ICP that in the 3,000, 3,200 accounts that we wanted to go after. And we agreed like, that's where we were going to spend our money. That's where we were going to put our focus. And anything outside of that was something that we just weren't interested in investing in. If it something happened with it, obviously we'll take the meeting and everything. But like, that's the first thing we align on is, is like, what are the type of accounts that matter? And so I worked on that with, again, ops, marketing and myself. But then I did something extra is I went to my CS team and I said, listen, these are the traits that we're seeing that we want to get. If you got customers that look like this, would you be excited? And we actually had to make several changes because CS was like, that's actually not right, Mark. We want it, we would rather have this or we'd rather have that. And we were able to really dial in like customers that our CS team is going to be excited about getting that are going to be really successful customers. And so that we brought all of that go-to-market motion, combined it with marketing and, and got that ICP right. Once you have that right, then you got like common language, you got a you know, a patch of ground you can rally around. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest parts. Like, is he running the right demand gen programs? I don't know. Are the ads cool? I don't know. I don't really care. All I know is like, give me air cover on the accounts that I need to get our next, you know, $10 million worth of revenue from. And then all my ground troops will go in and book the meetings. And like, if we do it together, we'll do it really fast and get a ton of great meetings. Patrick, last question. I first heard about you, Mark, from your LinkedIn post. And I just love some of the information you shared about your journey at outreach. But here's the question, because personal brand, a lot of people are saying you got to go out and build your personal brand today, not only at an executive level, but an individual salesperson level. What do you think the importance is for a frontline account executive into building their own personal brand on a LinkedIn? Is that valuable or they should focus more time on building their company's brand? I think why either or, you know, but I would build personal brand first. So I would say like I'm a not a recent convert to this, but in the last three years, I've converted over to this thinking. And I two people helped me understand it. One was Max Altshuler, who was the founder of Sales Hacker that Outreach acquired. And I got to be really great friends with Max over the years. And he's probably one of the most aggressive, innovative thinkers I've ever met. Like just constantly like, I got to do it a new way, got to do a new way. 
I remember I went to a conference and I couldn't walk from one end of the conference hall to the other if I was walking next to Matt, but Max, because so many people would stop him as we were walking by. And he attributed a lot of that to his brand that he built on LinkedIn and then really accelerated with in-person and personal, you know, because he's just a really awesome guy. And so that, and then I had a rep named Andrew Mewborn and Andrew said, hey, listen, I think I can build a brand on LinkedIn and get as much action as I can out of cold calling and stuff. And sure enough, after a few months of posting regularly and staying like in his area of expertise and stuff, he was handing leads out to other reps. He was able to get in deals and all that stuff. And so not this year, but last year, I said, I'm going to post every day for a year. And I posted almost every single day for probably 10 months, maybe 11 months. I missed maybe three days. And in that year, I got 8 million views. My went from followers, went from 5,000 to 25,000. And all of a sudden, like I had people, if I was in a deal, I would use my network to help us in the deal. So that's why I say it's not either or, it's both and. Like build your personal brand because that's what you know about. That's what your passion is. That's who you are. That's what people want to buy from humans. So do that. But then you can leverage that to help your team, to help your company, to help your peers, to help your profession. And so that's where I see is like, if you're just building it to build you so you can do something for you, maybe you can get something, but eventually people see through that. I didn't do all that posting to build my brand. I did it because I was jealous of how Mewborn and Max could get into any deal, how they had so many connections, how every time we were doing a deal, a big strategic deal review, Max was like, well, I know three people at that deal. And I'm like, why do I not have that? And I I don't have it to their extent yet. But like I started to get where I could be very helpful in deals because I had a great network of people because of the brand I built on LinkedIn. Great. Great insights. I'm going to wrap this up with just one question. And that is, we have a lot of early career people who listen to the podcast, often in sales, but also customer success and finance. But if you were talking to a very recent college grad or an early career person who wants to be a next great B2B SaaS CRO, that's their vision. What advice do you give them now at early career? Well, funny, I have a 20-year-old daughter who was a victim of the senior year of high school, no graduation pandemic, and first year of college room because of the pandemic, who took a lot of AP classes and then just was like, I want to get done with college. And so she took classes over every break. She's going to graduate in two and a half years from one of the top 10 sales schools. The school has a sales major uh, in the country, and she's actually going to be an SDR at outreach. And this is her like, so let me tell you the advice that I gave her. One is you better figure out that you know how to build a brand on LinkedIn. So her and newborn, she posts every day. Awesome story of she, I gave her a book and she's like, I don't know what to post. I gave her a book. I said, read this book and just cite the author. When you read something interesting, do your thoughts on it. She ended up developing a relationship with that author and got invited to that author's private book release of her second book. And so like, that's just a cool example of what that stuff can do for you. So that's the first thing is, is build your brand on LinkedIn, build a network. The second thing is, is you better understand that the real differentiator between good and great is work ethic. Are you going to grind and are you going to work? Like if you need to make a hundred calls a day and you're on call 92 and it's 5 PM, do you stop or do you make eight more dials? I'm convinced the person that finishes out the hundred over time will win the race. And so 
make sure you have your work with it. Our third thing is, is cold call reluctance. Just get on the phone. If you want to go from SDR to AE and you don't cold call, then why are you going to all of a sudden be great in first meetings, which is basically a 30 minute cold call? Like get comfortable with no's. Like every no gets you close to a yes. Go find some no's so you can get to your yeses and like get over the rejection of people that aren't rejecting you, but they're rejecting a situation that has been crappy that they've been in for many, many years, which is like, I hate these cold calls are super pushy. The IRS isn't really calling me, blah, 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 blah. So they're responding to a situation, not you inside the situation. So just separate that from yourself. So, and then lastly is like, learn, like be a learner, be an avid learner, be curious, figure it out. Like if you can, if you can do those, those things, I think that you have a great chance to, uh, to start a career that could lead to you being an executive at a, at a really cool, fun tech company. We're excited to see that you used learning as the last one ever had pop on because <laughs> those of us who grew up in sales, you know, a long time ago, we had the ABCs, A always BBC closing, but I believe in the ABL model. A always BBL learning. And that is a great way to wrap up this Metrics Measure Up episode with Mark Cosserglow, the CRO at Catalyst. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Mark. Right. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I do want to make sure that I promote something that I am doing that's a little bit out of my comfort zone is uh, I have done tons and tons of posts on how to do right discovery, how to do the right kind of demo, how to negotiate correctly and frameworks like that. And I've been asked over and over and over again to create a course where people can take all that information and learn how to become experts in those areas and use the coaching that I've given dozens and dozens and dozens of salespeople to become top earners at the biggest companies in the world and the best companies in the world. And so I just launched with my friend, Andrew Mewborn, the Digital Sales Collective, which is a series of courses that we're starting to launch the first course on December 19th. And so for anybody who'd like to go, the wait list is open. There's gonna be special pricing for people that sign up on the wait list. And so go to digitalsalescollective.com and make sure that you sign up for uh, the courses that we'll be releasing there. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying and finding value from our guests and the content they're sharing, mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to the metrics to measure podcast on your favorite podcasting app go ahead and give us that five star rating and provide your review on how we can make the podcast even better thank you everyone thank you mark thank you for listening to today's metrics to measure up podcast if you would like to learn more about b2b SaaS metrics and benchmarks please visit revopsquared.com